Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. Today, looking at that word which we have just sung about, the word Emmanuel, you have a Bible in whatever form you've brought it, you could turn to Matthew, because that's where we're going to camp out, and we're going to read through, I'm going to read through a section of Matthew that's probably familiar to many of us, but then we're actually going to just camp out on one verse today from that particular passage. And one might ask, how much could you possibly get out of one verse? Well, I'm here to tell you, there are scholars who have given their lives to that one verse, and they haven't even scratched the surface. So we're going to be looking at one verse from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. What does that word Emmanuel mean, and why is it so important? There's a danger of familiarity. Anybody who's been through any kind of a difficulty in a relationship knows that sometimes it's easy to become complacent. I know a lot of times you'll see it depicted in media, movies, TV. You get the quintessential, I thought everything was fine, honey. And she says, you're kind of blind because you haven't seen how this relationship has been drifting and you haven't done anything to inspire the relationship or to do anything to strengthen it. And there's a danger of familiarity. There's a danger spoken of even in Scripture. In Matthew, a little later on in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13, When Jesus was back in his hometown and he says, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. Why was that? It's because the people in that hometown knew him as the little boy of the carpenter's son, Joseph, and they knew his family. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. He's just a hometown guy, just like us. He's nothing special. And so the scriptures tell us that he could do only a few miracles. He still did a few to his credit. He did a few miracles, but he could only do a few there because of their unbelief. Why was that? Because of familiarity. So there's a danger to familiarity, and for we preachers who have to try to bring something at Christmas time every year, there's a challenge of familiarity. How do we continue to retell the story that we think everybody probably already knows by heart? I mean, several of you could probably stand up and recite the Christmas story because you've read it every year And so there's a challenge. How do we do that? Well, I think there's also power in familiarity if we get right back to the basics and find out what is it specifically that this story means. And that story starts right there with that word Emmanuel. So let me read through verses 18 through 25. And then we're going to show you from that one verse, which I will point out in just a moment, what Emmanuel means and why it's so important to us. Verse 18. Now, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, 
because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Little side note here about that word, Jesus. It's really from the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And then verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Steve read this just a minute ago in our worship time. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Fulfillment of prophecy 700 years prior to Jesus coming. And then verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So we're going to focus today on verse 23, because 23 captures the essence of this prophecy that took place back in Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. These are the three simple points we're going to look at today. Jesus is God, Jesus is God with us, and Jesus is God with us. Simple, right? And yet somehow probably much more profound than we can grasp. Jesus is God. Why is this so important? Why is it so meaningful? Well, because we have a tendency, because of familiarity, to go toward the the fantasy realm or the sentimental realm when it comes to Christmas. We love the twinkling lights. We like to hear the carolers in the mall. We listen to some of our favorite carols. And we we kind of go to the sentimental side of things. But if we're not careful, we'll look for the ideal rather than the real, and we will miss the real meaning of Christmas and why Emmanuel is so important. I saw one commercial that brought a little tear to my eye. Just this last week, they did such a good job of it. I don't know that I have seen that commercial yet. It may not be in our region or something, but it was from about two years ago. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, They did a great job touching the sentimentality. There was a little girl. uh, The mom was off at the corner of a building talking to a friend. The little girl saw a little homeless man, had a beard. He's a little scraggly. He had his cardboard box and some some of his uh, shopping cart filled with goodies and whatnot. And that's where he was camped out was the site of this building downtown in an urban area, and she walked over and saw that he was carving a piece of wood at a pocket knife. And he's carving this piece of wood, and the little girl smiles at him, and he has been passed over by hundreds of people walking right by him, but she sees him. She actually makes eye contact and has a human contact with this guy. He looks up, and he gives the warmest, sweet smile, and then he hands her what he's been carving, and it's a beautifully carved puppy, carved out of wood. And she looks surprised, but then she accepts that gift gratefully and smiles back at him, gives him a tiny little wave and walks back because her mother's trying to get her away from that man so they can go on about their Christmas shopping. And then later, this is where the commercial starts to get really touchy. Somebody comes in and that homeless man is sleeping next to that wall at night with all of his pile of stuff around him. And somebody comes in, you don't see their face, you just see two hands reaching down with a tablet that's also a video projector, and they put it on the sidewalk, and it's emitting light toward the brick wall, but we don't see what that light is just yet. And it intrigues us, and it captures our attention, and we got to see more about this commercial. What is this? Then we see other people coming with wrapped packages, and they're very quiet, and they set the wrapped packages down 
just over next to that brick wall as well. And then after a bunch of those packages have arrived, this man awakens, looks over, and looks up on that brick wall. And what's being projected on the wall by this tablet is a Christmas tree with twinkling lights. And under that tree is a pile of packages given to him. And we all think, oh, isn't that sweet? The sentimentality of Christmas. And there are a lot of good lessons to take away from that. It's not a bad thing to want to be generous. It's not a bad thing to have a pure heart like that little girl and to see people like that homeless man that other people would look past. It's not a bad thing for the homeless guy to give selflessly to the little girl and to be given back in return by a caring community. That's all great stuff. But it's not the real meaning of Christmas. And so we're really tempted to get into that whole sentimentality and we think that's the spirit of Christmas. But the real spirit of Christmas is that God is Jesus. And he came to us. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God. And somebody might say, well, yeah, but where does it say that? Well, let me explain. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And somebody says, okay, the Word, but, but who is this Word? Good question. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling tabernacle among us. Talking about Jesus Christ. All the way through John's gospel, we see lots of different kinds of illustrations why we know that he's talking about Jesus, the God who became one of us and entered our world. In Acts 20.28, Peter says that God purchased the church with his own blood. How could he do that? Well, he did so through Jesus who died on a cross. That's the kind of blood that he's talking about there. There are abundant evidences all through Scripture to show us that God came in the form of a human being, and that person is Jesus. Jesus is God. Mark 2, 1 through 12, the paralytic man brought to Jesus who's teaching. The crowd is there. They can't get to the man. They make a hole in the roof. They let the man down. And the first thing Jesus says is, I see your faith to the people who brought him. And then he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. And some well-meaning people might ask, who could say that but God alone? That's exactly what some of the religious leaders were thinking, and Jesus knew that. And so he said, but to prove that I have the authority to say something like I just said, pick up your mat and walk. So they saw perfect authority with perfect compassion, and they saw that he had the means to heal the man, but beyond that, he had the means to forgive someone. Only God could do that. So Jesus is God. There's evidence that Jesus really is God. First century Jews believed this. This is one big evidence for me that pushes me right over the edge to say, it's got to be real. There's so many abundant evidences, but this is the biggie for me. Why would it be such a big deal that first century Jews would believe this? I mean, there'd be a lot of people that might believe it, but why first century Jews? Because there were other groups of people that would have found it easier because of their background, to believe that maybe there was some God and he came incarnate than it would be for the first century Jews. For example, there are pantheists, those who worshiped God in everything. God is in everything. That's a very new agey kind of thing these days. And a lot of people have borrowed some of the pantheism from our Native American friends and their heritage. They would say, yes, but God is involved in everything. So if you look at that plant and you look at that cactus or you look at that bird or you look at that animal, and Paul was kind of getting onto these folks. Because he even wrote in Romans 1 that God's wrath is going to be displayed to these people who have substituted created things for the creator. And so there were pantheists. Now, they would have probably thought, okay, well, if God is in everything, then he could be in this little baby called Jesus, and he's God incarnate. We could buy into that. 
we'll add that to our list of things that we worship because we worship everything. That will be easy for them. Or they're polytheists, poly meaning many. There were many of these gods out there. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, a lot of big uh, movies that are being made now about the Greek gods and things like that. Well, one time Barnabas and Paul were out doing some ministry in one place, and Paul healed a man. And the people there thought that they were Greek gods, and they tried to fall down on their faces and worship them. They were calling them Zeus and Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas had to correct them and goes, whoa, wait a minute, you've got it wrong. Don't worship us. No, we're just sent by God, and we've got something that we want to share with you. So you could tell that there was a lot of this pantheism and polytheism going on in the first century world back then. But why first century Jews? Why would they have such a hard time with that? Because they were monotheists, not polytheists, not pantheists, but monotheists. Where do we get that? Well, it's in Deuteronomy 6, for example. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was part of the Shema, the prayer they were supposed to say as good Jews every morning and evening. That was the first thing they would recite. They knew it by heart. So for them to be ingrained with this concept, the Lord our God is one, we only serve one God. So to say, oh, but there's somebody else who's come along now, this would be incredible for them. It would be very difficult for them to comprehend. So for so many first century Jews to actually say, oh, I believe it. This is God incarnate. He really is who he claims to be. It was a big deal. How would they come to that conclusion? Because they saw authority and compassion perfectly combined in one human being. There are a lot of compassionate people today. There are a lot of well-meaning compassionate people. They would like to go toward the sentimentality of Christmas. They would like to say, let's give more shoeboxes, and we should. Let's give to the homeless people, and we should. Let's adopt people from the Hope Clinic, and we should. And we are doing those things, and I'm grateful for it. I heard, uh, Chloe, that 242 did a great thing in packing food for Haiti. We should do those things. Absolutely, we should do those things. Of all the people on the planet who should have compassion... It should be Christ followers. But for the first century Jews to believe that this man was who he claimed to be was a big deal. Why is that? Because they would ask things like, what kind of man is this? That's what Jesus' disciples asked from the boat after there was a huge storm and he spoke to the winds and the waves and said, peace be still, and everything got calm. And they said, what kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves should obey him. And that finally they would see with their own eyes what was going on, that even... A soldier at the cross would look up and say, surely he was the Son of God. The fact that they believed has become very annoying to many people. Why would it be so annoying? Because if you believe that God is incarnate and Jesus is the same as God, God the Son, then his claims are exclusive. And people in our current society don't want anything that's exclusive. They want to keep their options open. They want to put their coexist bumper stickers on the cars. I have no, no issue with wanting to coexist with folks. Yes, I want a peaceful society. I want to coexist with people out there. But this is a very annoying fact to some people to say, but Christ said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive statement. So it's very annoying to a lot of people. Other religions... Almost all other religions would say morality is what gets you connected to God. That's what gets you into heaven or nirvana or whatever their concept of the eternal afterlife might be. Morality is enough. 
Being good is enough. And Christianity is so different from that. Christianity says, no. Morality is not enough because none of us can be morally pure enough to do what it requires to get into heaven and to know God. Nobody. Why is it so important then that Jesus is God? Because Jesus took care of that problem. Jesus took care of the problem for us by dying in our place on the cross. It's what Jesus did for us, not our own goodness that gets us to heaven. That's what separates Christianity from all other religions around the world. So this first point, Jesus is God, is the perplexing, at times annoying, sometimes angering point that we're looking at it. Is it narrow-minded or is it true? Is it narrow-minded for Jesus to say, I am the only way? Or is it just simply true? I'll use my wife as an example, kind of a hypothetical situation. Some of you know that she went through a pretty severe illness for a couple of years. And it was just last December, a year, that she had her gallbladder taken out. Hallelujah, gallbladder's out. There were a couple of years leading up to the time when she finally got diagnosed that she was pretty sick. And they couldn't figure out what it was. I'm going to expand on this a little bit for the sake of illustration. So I'm, I'm storytelling right now. Let's say that she goes to several doctors, and some of them have some good ideas, and some of the people say, I think that some of your issues may be with diet. So you need to eat more fruits and veggies. And somebody else says, you need more rest. So when you feel tired, just rest and get rid of stress in your life, and you'll feel better. And some others might say, well, you need to exercise more. So you just exercise more, and you'll feel better over time. So she's got all these doctors, according to my story, which is an embellishment of what really happened. And they would tell her all these things. But what happens if she goes to this final guy who's a surgeon, and he says, based on all my tests, my best hunch is your gallbladder is the culprit. It's diseased. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. The only way for you to get better is not exercise or rest or more fruits and veggies. We need to take this puppy out of here. We need to do surgery on you and get rid of the culprit. And then I think you'll probably stand a much better chance of getting better. Now, what would happen if Joyce were were to say to that guy, that's really narrow-minded of you. You know, I, I have listened to a lot of good input. And there are a lot of these guys that don't want to cut on me. And I'm inclined to just believe that if I just rest more and exercise more and eat veggies, I'm going to feel fine. So I think that I'm not going to take your advice because you're so narrow-minded. Now, is he narrow-minded or is he just true? Is he right? Well, about the only way for her to find out in this case was to say, I think you're right. Take that puppy out. And they did. And guess what? That was the culprit. She feels so much better now. So what happens, instead of saying, I think Jesus is so narrow-minded, I think you Christians are so narrow-minded to suggest that there's only one way to heaven, yeah, but what if Jesus is right? What if there is one disease called sin that will send everybody into exile away from the love of God because of their rejection of Him, and the only way, the only way for them to get back to God is through Jesus who, by the way, gave himself completely up and died in our place. What if he's right? Then he's not narrow-minded. He's compassionate because he wants everybody to have that illness taken away. He wants everybody to say, yes, I accept your grace. I trust that this is the only way because of what you did for me. Every other founder, they would say, he's a moral, upright person. He was a good teacher. I'm telling you, folks. What we need is more than a good teacher. We need more than a good teacher. 
We need a Savior. That's what Jesus is for us. He's right. He's the only way. So the first point, that was the annoying point. This is the sweet point. Point number two is a whole lot funner. It's a beautiful point. Jesus is God with us. If some of you have studied a lot about the Old Testament, you'll find that God is pretty scary when he appears to people. He appears to Job in a whirlwind. I don't know if some of you have actually seen a tornado. It's a scary thing to witness. I mean, we'd see it on TV with storm chasers and stuff, but I remember driving, having come to Ohio for a revival when I was in seminary. We came up on spring break, and it was stormy, lightning flashing all around, and I was following where the storms were being tracked through the radio, and they were giving the county names, and I had the old atlas open because that was pre-Google. And I was looking at the counties, and I was going, okay, well, this is our county, and they just mentioned that county. We're passing over into this county. They would say, and now it's uh, tornado watch in this county, and we were following the storm. We were going on the same track as the storm, and I thought, maybe we should find a basement somewhere. And all of a sudden, I looked over to my right, and a, a lightning flashed, and the lightning flashed just behind a tornado funnel. And it was about a mile away. I know you're wondering, did you get sucked up in the tornado? No. We made it. But it's a scary thing to see an actual tornado. And God appeared to Job in this whirlwind, in this tornado. Frightening. To Moses in this burning bush that would not be consumed. Had to have been a frightening thing. Abraham, an angel sent to him. Every time an angel shows up in Scripture, what do they say? Fear not. Why do they have to say that? Because they're fearing because it's scary. Is it a scary thing to go to a manger and look down and see a tiny cooing baby? No, it's a baby. It's a, it's a harmless little infant. Christmas is all about a baby, God with us. Suddenly, everything shifted in history from God, the scary God that scared people half to death every time he appeared to them, to God appearing to us in a form that was not scary. Why did he do that? Because he wants to relate to us. He wants us to see that he is a God who is approachable. Here we have this tiny, vulnerable, dependent baby. And it's God. That's huge. It's a big demarcation in history. And then we see all the things around that. When Callie was a little girl, she was playing with beanie babies at that age. My daughter, Callie. We went to a DC Talk concert in Adrian. A friend of mine was the executive director of the Christian Family Center out there, and he said, uh, if you guys want to come to a pre-concert concert, they've been here for a week getting ready to go on the road, and as a thank you for having them in our facility, they're putting on a free concert to anybody in the community that wants to come. It was kind of a by invitation only, and we got invited. They were big stuff. So we get to this concert, and they were warming up, and Ed says, come with me for a second. And he invites us in the back door as they're finishing up their sound check. And he just stands there and says, I just thought it would be fun for you to see them finishing up their sound check. And they're wrapping up a couple of the songs. And then Toby Mack sees Ed standing next to us and just hops down off the stage when he's done and runs up and says, hey, who's this? And he starts talking to us like a real person. <laughs> And he shook our hand. And, you know, you, we tend to blow these things up in our minds as being unapproachable, and this guy's a rock star, and they've won awards and all that kind of stuff. He's just a guy. And after the concert, when we went back out into the lobby and waited for them to minister to people who had come forward during the invitation, then we waited out there, 
And Callie had brought a little lamb, beanie baby lamb or a stuffed animal lamb with her. And Toby Mac picks Callie up and starts just holding her while he's talking. And he's holding her, bouncing her, and talking with us because she was about the same age as a kid that they had just had, which he was going to be missing because he was on the road. He's just a guy. We tend to think of people as being otherly and unapproachable. and That's how people used to think about God. He comes in this form so that he is approachable, so he's with us. That's the amazing thing about this incarnation. He's with us. And then we think Jesus is God with us. Who is the us? What does Matthew 1 not say? He doesn't say, God is with all. He doesn't say that. There's nowhere in the Gospels, in the New Testament, where it says, and God died for everybody, and so everybody's going to heaven. It doesn't say that. Why would he say that? Because God is love, and God will not force that love on people who reject him. It says, not God with all, but God with us. Who is the us? The us is everybody who recognizes that we can't be moral enough. Christ can. Us are those people who say, I commit myself to Jesus Christ because he's the only way to heaven, and I accept that. That's the us. Like the shepherds, they were humble people. They weren't people with a degree. They didn't have lots of papers and a, a big curriculum vitae showing how good they were to be able to present to God to say, God, I demand that you accept me into heaven because look at my moral curriculum vitae. It was humble shepherds that were given the good news. And remember what the angels said to them? The angels were saying things like, glory to God in the highest, peace to men upon whom his favor rests. He didn't say peace to everybody, upon whom his favor rests. And that was an inner peace that can only be found by people who accept his grace. I read this week of a pastor's wife. She was given a, a traffic ticket, and she thought that it was unfair because she was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, also known as two semi-trucks. And she couldn't get through the red light until this other truck got out of her way. And the other truck was behind her to the point that she couldn't back up. And so she was just stuck. And she went through this red light and a cop gave her the ticket. And she said, well, can I contest this? He said, yeah, it's your right. She goes, well, I want to contest it. This was unfair. He says, I'll see you in traffic court then. So this lady shows up and man, she's got a ream of paperwork. Got a map of the intersection all mapped out. She's got exactly how many feet it is from this place to that place. How long is a semi-truck? This semi-truck was this many feet. She was ready. She was, and you know what? She got it thrown out. But we don't come to God that way. We can't come to him and say, you see my curriculum vitae of morality, God? I demand that you let me in because I have come prepared for that. These shepherds didn't have that. They were lowly on the ladder of social status. And yet God chose to give the good news to them. We're like that. We're the us if we're like the shepherds. If we'll say, I'm a nobody in front of you, God. I have no morality whatsoever, and so I just accept you for who you are. That's the us. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the same kind of peace that John writes about later that says this is a peace that passes all understanding. Human beings, apart from God, don't understand the kind of peace we have. True story, and I'm about to wrap up. Uh, a friend of ours, the Canada family, they're not from Canada, their last name is Canada. Uh, they were good friends of ours. Uh, 
they were at Packard Road Baptist Church when I was on staff there, right out of seminary uh, a long time ago. And I got a call uh, the night before Thanksgiving. And unfortunately, the lady that I knew the best, Valida Canada, her grandson passed away the day before Thanksgiving. And they were asking me, because they were hoping I was still in the area, if I could do the funeral and the graveside service. And of course, absolutely. I said, the Canada family has meant so much to us through the years, and I, it's an honor for me to do that. He was 25 years old. He had spina bifida. He'd been in a wheelchair most of his life. He'd had numerous physical ailments, and he was a believer. Beth, the mom, at the graveside service yesterday morning, stood there and proclaimed faith. And I know that my son is leaping and running and jumping because I know that Jesus Christ did for him what he'll do for everybody who receives him. Such a testimony. Yes, she's grieving. Absolutely. We all grieve when there's a loss. But, oh, there's hope and there's a peace that passes all understanding to those people who have understood that we are the us. Not because of anything we've done, but just because of what Christ has done for us. So here's the big challenge for us at this season. What are we going to do to get close to him? There may be some pondering that we need to do. Maybe we need to go home and put on some earphones and listen to some carols and hear them with fresh ears because there's a lot of good gospel in many of those old carols. The gospel presentation is there about the real meaning of that first Christmas, that God is Jesus and he is with us and he's with us. Father, I really do pray that we'll really start to comprehend what it means to have this very unusual story that becomes for us the Christmas story so that it won't be so familiar that it just goes over our heads. I pray that we'll really let your Holy Spirit sink these words into our lives so that we get it and that we understand you're making outrageous claims that seem exclusive, but it's not because you're so exclusive and it's not because you're mean, it's because you're absolutely loving and compassionate and absolutely moral, both at the same time. And you're right. And because you're right, and because you hold the key to everyone's salvation, I just pray that we will get that word out to as many people as we can, because we care as well. And if we care about people, we need to be sharing the good news. And I pray we'll do that as you empower us through the Holy Spirit and that through our actions, they will see Christ demonstrated. And through our words, they will hear your name exalted. Make this Christmas holiday special. As more and more people hear the true meaning and start to grasp it. I pray in Jesus' name.